0: everything they make is so wonderful and beautiful at every age. And I'm like, fuck you, man. <laughs> like-
1: Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enslicht. How are you doing, Mickey?
0: Uh, doing pretty well. I'm uh, excited to, uh, to chat with you, as always, Yoel. Um, since last uh, I saw you, you were in Puerto Rico, I believe. How was that? It was uh, very hot. It was nice. Yeah, so uh, not this kind of uh, frigid uh, spring that we have here.
1: Yeah, no, it was properly hot. I sweated and everything.
0: Excellent. I like sweating. it it feels good occasionally (laughs) i don't
1: know know what to how to respond to that i really Uh, don't
0: well you know so you well it struck me that we haven't actually like kind of uh spoken with each other about the fact that we're one year old
1: we are we are that's a that's an amazing milestone isn't
0: it yeah one year um so how has your life changed
1: (laughs) more dicks
0: (laughs) more dicks okay (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> what did you get me a present to celebrate I, another dick perhaps no no i got no, you i got really, you nothing to celebrate nothing no, no too no, bad nothing at all okay well um i i'm glad that we're marking the occasion um, I do uh, I, I do want to introduce our special guest, um, I guess, the, who we're both very excited uh, to welcome to the show. So our uh, guest today is uh, Daniel Engber. Uh, he is a science journalist. He writes about science and culture for Slate, the New York Times Magazine, and Wired, among other outlets. Uh, he's the winner of several interesting sounding awards, uh, including the National Academies of Science Communication Award in 2012 and the Sex Positive Journalism Award in 2008. I would love to know what that's for if we have time. Um, He's also been a guest on uh, All Things Considered, Radiolab, Fox News, and The Tonight Show with Jay Leno uh, And his work has been anthologized in various best-of series Um, He's also been really engaged in the discussion around the replication crisis in psychology and in other fields um, And has written some of the best stories for popular audiences uh, talking about that stuff Uh, So, Dan, uh, welcome to the show Thanks a lot well, so we're super excited uh to have you join us. Um of course, what we have to start with is is what we're drinking. So, do you want to go first? Sure.
2: Yeah, I uh my criteria for for what beer to buy at the fancy beer store was what label looked interesting and so That's mine
1: too. Yeah. Okay,
2: so that that's number 1 and number 2 it had to be less than uh 7% alcohol by volume. So, um, oh, and also less than ten dollars per bottle. So I, I felt like there's surprisingly few options that fit those <laughs> three criteria. But why the seven percent criterion? Two beers. It just I just wanted to keep things, you know, reasonable.
0: Are you pusillanimous? He just
1: look, man. Not all of us have a drinking problem. Okay, <laughs>
2: you're ad- attacking me. Less than a minute into the podcast. Okay. It is. That Welcome is to the
0: show. His
2: MO. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, this is called Apex Predator, and it is a farmhouse ale, and there's a picture of a lion on it
0: with a mouse in its belly. That's all. Apex Predator. I like it. Um, well, you know, it's funny enough, Dan. Uh, I, too, am drinking a farmhouse uh, What's well, farmhouse IPA, uh, and I also bought it uh, because <laughs> I like the the label. <laughs> Actually, I, like I like the name. It's, it's called imposter syndrome, um, which I think for, for academics is a, a, a common thing that uh, many of us feel uh, in grad school, uh, assistant professor, or even full professor sometimes feel imposter syndrome. Um, it is uh, from a actually a small brewer, a microbrewery, uh, y'all, right down the street from you on College Street, uh, called Folly Brewing. Uh, and they got a, really an excellent selection. So I'm, I haven't tried any of their brews yet. So this should be fun. Now,
2: do you mind if I derail us right away?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that, well, that is the show.
2: OK, so, uh, you know, I follow a lot of scientists on Twitter and um, I feel like scientists are always talking about imposter syndrome. And it, I just don't understand why imposter syndrome would be, you know, more acute or more pervasive in science or in academia than in any other field.
0: Oh, that's a great question, Mickey. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, well, I wonder if it's academia. I mean, a lot, a lot of really, really smart people, um, and a lot of people have been told they're smart along, you know, for their entire lives. And I think it's it's uh, you end up comparing yourself with really smart people, and you often end up feeling dumb, and that's kind of a uh, an unusual experience for someone who's typically not felt that. So I'm not sure. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, I I think that's part of it, but I think there's also smart people in lots of fields. It seems like. In science, there's just so much stuff to know that no one person could ever know all of it. And so it's always easy to pick an area in which you feel like comparatively like a total idiot. Um, and so you just strategically pick your comparison and no matter how much you know, you can still end up feeling like you know nothing.
2: That makes sense. Hmm. What Do you think it might be in part because uh, scientists are because the rest of the world sees scientists as being so smart and knowledgeable. Whereas I'm just thinking there are lots of smart journalists that I work with, Um, but I don't don't think journalists feel as much like imposters. And maybe that's just because everyone else despises journalists. (laughs) So (laughs) So what are we pretending to be, really?
1: Right, 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 right. Well, so, I, I mean, you can correct me about this, but my impression as an outsider is, you know, if you're good at what you do as a journalist, it's not like you look at, I don't know, Maggie Haberman or whatever, and you're like, man, the way she has like sources in the White House, you know, it's just like not a, a reasonable comparison for you, right? So your specialization is sort of like you're okay with being like, oh, I don't know about stuff outside of my specialization. And for some reason, I feel like whenever anybody is like, well, this neuro thing, I never know how, how much can I be ignorant of it without it being embarrassing, you know, like, cause it, it's not really, to to me, it, it uh it's not really clear. Like I'm supposed to know something about the brain, but do I know enough? Maybe
0: I don't. So is the idea here that uh, to some extent, yes, we specialize, but we're also somewhat generalists. So, so last, our last episode, we had Brent Roberts and this, he's, he's so incredibly impressive, smart in many, many domains. And, and, you know, how do you know so much about it? all these things? So it's hard not to compare and, um, you know, I know a lot about a tiny little thing, and that's basically <laughs> it. Um, I know a lot about beer. I, I'm happy about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no imposter syndrome there. Yeah, yeah.
0: So uh, before we let you off the hook, Yoel, uh You know, Please tell James Heathers what you're drinking.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I'm drinking a hot toddy, which does have rum in it. So um, I feel like I'm at least in spirit participating. But yeah, I feel like I'm coming down with a cold or something. The idea of drinking beer right now, um, as as excited I am uh, to drink the imposter syndrome, uh, it it just didn't uh, sit right with me. So I'm going to medicate here with uh, some rum, hot water, lemon and honey. And it is very good.
0: Dan, I just want to say again, thank you for coming. And um, I feel uh, you've played a really big part in uh, the public conversation we've been having about the replication crisis. So um, it's, it's it's great to have your voice, and uh, your articles are, are always studious and well thought. I think it's really 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 well done. I, I enjoy them. So in that you know in that vein, uh, I noticed that in your bio and I, maybe in your Twitter handle as well, you call yourself a slow form journalist. Um, so. I, you know, I want to know what you mean by that, and how you, how that differs from your colleagues who aren't doing this. Uh, <laughs> that is um, that is
2: self-effacing. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's not a uh, it's not a term anyone. It's a term I made up. Um, so uh, I don't you know. There's some of these phrases. I don't know if they exist outside of the journalism world. So d- d- uh, is the phrase long form journalism commonly understood by non journalists?
1: Sure. Yes.
2: Okay. Good. See, I don't. I, it's not even clear to me that that's the case. But um, you know, there's a bunch of, of. I feel like the idea of long form journalism, maybe even the phrase itself, came about kind of in reaction to, defensively in reaction to um, the spread of like hot takes and clickbait on the internet, and and you know, that's a very um, that's a very profitable way to do journalism, and it's very common, and it is uh, reviled by just about everyone, I think. And so there's kind of this effort to say, "Oh no, no, no! We're doing, we're doing serious, uh, you know, lukewarm takes or whatever, and we're doing." And and so the emphasis on Long form journalism with this kind of uh, virtuous response. I, I mean, I love long form journalism. I don't want to say that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not good. But so, so slow form journalism was just a, a phrase I made up to uh, pretend to be uh, signaling my virtue when really what I was getting at is that I work very slowly and miss deadlines and find myself unable to uh, respond to things in the news as they happen.
0: And here I am thinking this is a serious label that uh, that, that you're, you're you're starting here. It's an inside <laughs> joke all along. And that was my serious question.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there is something a little bit serious about it. So, it's science journalists, in particular, um, you know, I don't. I, again, this is I, you. You stop me if there are things that that are known or unknown outside of journalism worlds that I, where I'm sort of uh, you know not. that I don't understand what you might not understand. But so there's this embargo system around uh, science papers um, and that kind of I hate embargoes. We can talk about that if you want. Um, But the embargoes create this rush around science news. And it's like one of the reasons that I do science journalism is because I can't stand like the rush around breaking news in other areas. I like the fact that like nothing really breaks in science. Um, Even when when Mickey is tweeting the results of the ego depletion, triple R, you know, from like moments after it's it's out there. You know, that's like as close as, as, as I can see to something that is actually breaking and interesting for being breaking. But, um, and yet you have this sort of artificial uh, ecosystem of breaking news that's created by the journals. So I just kind of like, Reject that out of hand and refuse to write about anything that's embargoed, even if I find it interesting and care about it. Um, so, so slow form. When I describe myself as a slow form journalist, it's 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 partly a joke and partly, uh, you know, my reaction to that.
1: Right. So, why don't we talk about embargoes? Um, first of all, can you sort of briefly explain what that is for those of our listeners who might not know the system, and then, what is your problem with the idea?
2: So uh, the the embargo system is one by the the journals will um, put out a press release for an upcoming paper, and uh, that press release will come with a stipulation that you may not write anything about this paper until such and such a date and time when the paper will be formally published, and the claim is made by the journals that this is to promote better, higher quality science communication because then it forces everyone to slow down instead of trying to beat each other to press. Everyone has the same amount of time to make all the necessary phone calls to get, you know, to speak to the authors of the paper, then to speak to, you know, second and third and fourth parties for commentary and interpretation of the paper. You know, I the tone I'm using <laughs> makes it sound terrible, but I guess the words may not sound that bad. Uh, why it bothers me is because, I mean, it's, I just seem, it's such utter bullshit. Like, I, I'll be working on a big slow form story, you know, on a a broad topic that is not pegged to one single new paper. And I'll be talking to a scientist who has some relevant work that would be really interesting to discuss some preliminary findings. And of course, they feel like they can't discuss it because what if that, you know, that either will violate an embargo that exists or an embargo that might one day exist if the paper is accepted so it's just it's this like restriction on free communication about scientific findings it just feels very like counter to the principles of of science let alone um, you know science journalism and journalism
0: as a whole recently there has been some talk uh, uh, in some ways blaming uh, some of the problems we're in, in psychology and science uh, you know, on journalism to some extent. You know, to some extent, you know, our results are overhyped; they're exaggerated uh, because there are these eager consumers of of, of this product. Um, but you know, it seems like th- there's some debate about you know who who's to blame here. Is it you know are, is it the scientists who are you know are they the ones who are overclaiming? Is it the journalists who want to uh, appease their editors and and hungry uh, readers? Um, so what number one do you think there is a problem like is are is scientific results overhyped and if so like you know what do we do about it it really is just there are
2: problems at different levels i mean there's um yeah there the the standards are different in in different parts of science journalism i do think that um You know, in general, there's been a big problem of credulous reporting of especially psychology findings, social psychology findings that's um, it kind of intersects with a book publishing world and uh, that's sort of again, another slightly different way of form of science journalism with different rules and and different degrees of fact checking and so forth. but it's it's so hard to tease out how much of this is coming from the journalists how much is it coming from the the individual scientists who have pr strategies or university press offices and how much is it is coming from like entire fields you know i this is something i've i'm very interested in i kind of feel like these things all bleed together though
1: yeah so i've noticed that When I read about science in the popular press now, certainly like when I read you, when I read Ed Young, uh, maybe Jesse Single, I actually don't know who writes for Ars Technica, but their science journalism, I think, is quite good. Like, there is a sort of more skeptical approach, right? They don't just take what the press release is saying at face value. They try to put things into context for the reader to um, talk about the uncertainty inherent in these results and so on. Do you think that that's something that has changed sort of recently, that this is like a post-replication crisis where journalists are sort of waking up to, well, we can't just take this stuff at face value and we have to be more skeptical, or is it just that the same people who are skeptical now or have always been skeptical?
2: I have, I, I think that's a, 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 great question. I think it's, it's, it's always tempting to deal in the present moment like things have really gotten better. Like now we've we've got this figured out. I mean, it's it's definitely the case um, that science journalism, especially in areas that you know I happen to be interested in, neuroscience and psychology, is more responsible today than it was uh, ten years ago. It's it's more you know um, we have more tools uh, at our disposal for you know how to even. Think critically about stuff we're reading. Um, I, you know, I, I think back sometimes on like the first piece that I wrote that was sort of on reproducibility issues. And it was before I knew anything about the topic. I had never heard the phrase P hacking. I knew nothing about the sort of statistical issues. Um, and I just didn't even have the language for it. Um, I, another example that comes to mind is, you know, Slate did a whole bunch of coverage of, um, the science of of ovulatory shifts and and effects on on psychology and behavior, uh, very critical coverage. Now I looked back at that coverage recently for a piece I was writing, and again, it's if 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 we were confronted with those same papers today, I think it would just be so much easier to figure out what was wrong with them. Back then, it was like a very jumbled critique that was like a part feminist critique, a part like an uninformed methodological critique mixed in and then just some other random stuff. Like we just had a sense that something was off about some of those papers, but we just didn't have the language to describe it. So it's much better now than it used to be. But all that said, I am sure that there are, you know, this happens on, on on a cyclical basis that you know certainly like individual um individual topics like you know I don't know how long ago it was that everyone was writing about oxytocin. Now I think everyone would write much more skeptically about oxytocin. And I don't think it's because we're smarter and better journalists than we used to be. I think it's just because like the oxytocin story has, has run its course or maybe it's that the scientists have taken the lead and, and like let us know that we should just, you know, cool it a little bit. Um, but you know, what's who's to say that you know wh- whatever is a hot topic now won't seem like oxytocin five years from now or ten years from now? So I, 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 you know, I I do I like to think that things have gotten a lot better in in a substantive, lasting way. But I sometimes think it's sort of domain specific and like we figured it out on a couple of topics and we're just going to get hoodwinked again on the next uh, shiny things.
0: Yeah, I think you're right because I mean I. I think there's a handful of of science journalists, you know, Yuel, you mentioned a bunch who I think are really doing a great job. Of course you're, you're among them. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, I still, you know, I listen to podcasts a lot and, you know, last year I was listening to some invisibility podcast by NPR and they're, citing some clearly bad study. I mean, it it takes very little knowledge to to see that this is bad, uh, just bad science. And they just covered it in such a credulous way. And it just, it frustrated me um, that that is still happening. This was last year, 2018. Um, So I wish there were were more people like you, Dan.
1: Yeah, although I do feel like particularly in neuro, I see less of the uh, brain scans reveal that you're in love with your iPhone kind of, stuff. I don't know, maybe it's just that I've stopped reading those news sources. I don't encounter those stories and they still exist just as much, but that's my subjective impression.
2: Yeah, well, I mean the the brain imaging is is one very specific story though. Um, you know, uh I that's a really interesting one and actually one that I I mean to write about. I got my start uh before as a journalist, I was uh I did I was a, a lab researcher and I got my start in fMRI and that was one of the things I was most interested in covering when I first became a journalist and at the t- at that time it was like the hype was everywhere and I did what I could to, <laughs> to help uh deflate some of that hype and then it just it like went away but it's again it's not like there was never hype about anything it's just brain imaging uh sort of like lost some of its appeal um and why is that i I don't know it's a it's a and it happens to have occurred at sort of the same time that a lot of these other things were being revisited, so again, I guess that's um that that's another uh piece of evidence in favor of like you know history is is progressing towards <laughs> better things or something that there was there was this sort of turning point in two thousand you know eight nine ten eleven where um where a lot of fields were, you know, fixing their stuff.
0: <laughs> Although that could also be evidence. I mean, I, I just I, I bumped into a friend of mine who introduced me to a an historian of science, and 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 he was telling me that essentially the history of science is a discovery of some technology, um, some new method, something new, and that is then seen as a panacea, you know, a solution for everything for about 10 years, five years. And then, you know, skeptics grow, skepticism grows, um, and then, you know, we get a more realistic sense of, of, of what the technology can and cannot offer. And I wonder with, you know, brain scanning, it's, I mean, those images, you know, when we first saw them right in the late 90s early 2000s they were they were breathtaking right and now you see them all the time you're like yeah okay um someone added color to these uh uh magnetic resonance imaging and images and uh i'm not so enamored with them anymore um so i wonder if that's a a coincidence in time or if that's actually uh again the kind of more uh, us being more serious about uh replications and about the state of science kind of chipping away at, at at the the veneer of, of of neuroimaging as well neuroimaging as well
1: i mean i think it's a great question like how generalized the learning is right and so dan i feel like you kind of have the skeptical take of like yeah you might learn that like a certain area or technique is overhyped but you just don't generalize that and then you go on to the next thing and you know this year it's grit or the health consequences of vaping or whatever right well, and that's that- real <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> sure. that's real marijuana that's, that's that's that that cures it all man
1: <laughs> no no the bad health consequences dude the bad <laughs> it's bad for you
0: Ignore that stuff.
1: Yeah, totally.
2: Well, I mean, the stuff that I find that is is most heartening is when you see again like cultural shifts in the way the work is done. And so, for you know, for science journalists, I think what changes over time maybe is like how how we evaluate the credibility of a of a finding or a set of findings. I mean, it's there's there's no like set way to do it, but there's kind of like industry standards. and those the, the reason I got interested in covering uh, replication issues in open science in the first place is because the ego depletion thing was one where uh, I just got totally freaked out because all my rules of thumb had failed, right? So um, I was scared, you know, and, and like how, how the hell am I going to? Keep doing responsible science journalism. If anything that any test I would have applied, you know, internally to to this body of literature, it would have passed, right? So, uh, so, so for me, my own like little mini methodological reform <laughs> was was to figure out to try to rebuild a system for you know for evaluating claims, deciding what to write about, deciding what seemed legit, uh, you know, when all the old rules seemed. Now suspect. So I do think those rules change. I think, um, you know, there was used to be a time when science journalists, you know, never heard of meta analyses and didn't care about them. And then that kind of changed. And maybe now there's a little shift where science journalists are getting a little more savvy about realizing that, you know, a a meta analysis might be, I don't know how to describe it, maybe fucked. Um, So. Yeah, those those things change. But I mean, so that, that, that feels like a real important shift. It's not just like, oh, yeah, now we're bored of writing about fMRI or now we're bored about writing about, you know, oxytocin or whatever. That's like now the way we do our job day to day, like the tools that we have to apply to everything we write about will change. But of course, I also worry that, you know, a you know, meta-analysis seemed pretty good until they didn't, right? And so even those the the rules of thumb always, um, always you know, <laughs> always go extinct or, or, or become obsolete at some point, right?
0: Let's get talking about this. But I am uh, out of beer, uh, and I'm not sure. Dan, are you are you doing your part for the podcast? I I'm getting there. Will you Will you finish it up for us before the break? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Right from the bottle. Come on, you can do it. excellent
1: all right so let's take a, a quick break um we'll fix ourselves more drinks and uh see you in a few So welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. Uh, we're both uh, sad to say on Twitter. Um, we both check the Twitter mentions and DMs. So that's at four beers pod, probably the, quickest way to get our attention is that if you're more of an email type of person we are forbeerspod at gmail.com uh, our website as always is forbeers.fireside.fm you can listen to any of our back episodes there as well as dropping us a note uh one last thing um if you like the show please rate and review us on itunes because it helps other people discover us and that is it for promos mickey uh have you switched beers or are you still on the uh what is it? Fear of failure. Imposter I, syndrome. Impo-
0: no, I finished it because uh, unlike some podcast hosts, hosts I know, I finished my Dude,
1: I beer. drank my drink. I'm on my second drink.
0: <laughs> You're not fucking drinking beer. It's called. I'm drinking Jesus, rum. I'm beers, rum is man. more
1: hardcore than beer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> with tea and honey. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I'm still. Uh, so, I've got more beer from uh, Folly uh, Brewing on College Street in Toronto. Uh, and I was very uh, intrigued by this. This is called Pillar of Light, and it's a buckwheat saison. And I've never had one of those, so I'm curious to see what that tastes like. And it's a 6%, which would, I guess, uh, this would meet your, your criterion, Dan. And,
2: and I'm about to add a fourth criterion, the buckwheat criterion. That sounds amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, sounds, like, sounds good. We'll, we'll find out.
1: And um, uh, Dan, uh, did you change things up, or are you still on the same?
2: No, I've got a uh, a smoked white beer called Ooh. Freigeist.
1: Huh. I don't really know what that is. A
2: smoked
0: beer. That sounds intriguing as well.
2: Oh, you, you should try. I love a smoked beer. I This is. a i I saved this for two out of for the second beer because uh, because I'm a fan of a smoked beer. Let me taste it.
0: I don't think I've ever tried a smoked beer. It's good. Smoky. Hmm. It's good. Buckwheaty. <laughs> <laughs> no, no actually, I couldn't even tell if it, there's any buckwheat in here at all. Um, it's nice and citrusy. But smoked beer, man, I got to try that. I got to find a, a brewer here that, that does that. So, I mean, I think we ended with kind of asking you about your, your bird's eye view. Um, but in, you know, in the emails that we exchange, uh, in building up to to this podcast, you 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 you, you fluttered an idea that I found intriguing um. Which maybe I'm not sure if it's an article you're working on or or, or whatnot, but you had suggested that um, you know it was you know, t- times up for the top-down blue ribbon panel kind of analyses of the state state of the field, and that that's not going to move the, the needle anymore.
2: I, I'm just not sure if it has ever moved the needle. I mean, this was uh, in this was a piece I was thinking about writing and decided not to, but it, it was in response to the National Academies uh, put out a report on reproducibility issues did you see that by any chance i think i saw that they were doing that but i did not read
1: it i'm aware of the existence of this thing but i haven't read it
2: right so i mean like qed like you if if you guys haven't seen this thing and don't seem to really care about it like why is it happening (laughs) why were years of you know and and multiple uh I don't know how many meetings they had but people were flown around the country. I mean it's just it like it just seems absurd that this was happening. And then if you actually read the document, I mean it's not like it uh was outrageous in any way, but it just I just was like I I couldn't get through it and it's the kind of thing that I ought to be able to get through, you know, a professional matter. There's all this throat clearing about how, you know, um, the difference between replicability and reproducibility, and then you know we want to be clear that it's you know you don't expect that the um that that things will replicate every single time i mean they're all reasonable points, but it i just i don't know it seemed like uh I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but just like there's there's a a big problem that a lot of people are taking very seriously and treating as an urgent matter in need of an urgent fix, and then there's this you know committee that comes out with this boring report that no one is going to read. I it it just put highlighted for me that you know that the, there is the way this is being addressed, which is very grassroots, and then there are these efforts, these kind of lame ass efforts by the people you know in control of august institutions like the national academies that that seem to just have uh no value at all i i mean that's that's a pretty extreme thing to say no value at all but i certainly haven't been able to think of any value that this latest report has um so uh yeah that was kind of just an idea i was toying with um and 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 what i'd, I'd be curious to hear from you guys, if if you think there's if, if there's kind of like a, a top-down approach that has been useful here and and really helped address some of the problems,
1: what do you think, Mickey? Uh,
0: so I've got two thoughts. Um, so first is, you know, I think it's no surprise that you, and I have not read it uh, because you know we've been marinated in this for for years now. It's been, you know, we're we're, we're almost on a decade, right? So you know. It, 2019, 2011 is widely considered when this all you know, broke out. Um, so we've been thinking about this for a long, long time, but I think psychology is at the heart of this this movement or crisis. So maybe the National Academy is not speaking to us, right? They're speaking to the other disciplines who maybe haven't um, examined or interrogated some of these concerns as much as psychology has. So that's you know point number one. Um, but point number two, and this relates actually to something uh, Brent Roberts said in our last episode, um you know he was kind of s- suggesting that a lot of senior people and the people who held power th- they didn't give a shit, and I was like, well, "Who cares about them? You know we have got these all the young people, you know the future is is it, it, uh, well a lot of the future seems to be clearly on board, so like who cares? And he and he made the very astute point that he's like, well, listen, the older people are in control of our institutions. They're the ones who accept grants. They're the ones who fund the future future of science. So I think it's really important that these august societies be on board with these changes. Um, now, just because there's some blue ribbon panel that wrote, you know, sat on a committee, you know, for a few years and wrote this thing, doesn't mean anything will actually change. Um, but it, at least it's hopeful that they're talking about it. I mean, it could, they could not be talking about it. And I think that would be worse. Um, whether that's actually effectu- effectuating change, I'm not sure. Um, yeah.
2: Totally fair. And, and you know, it, it it may be that some of my, um, my skepticism was aimed, you know, less even at this report or the issue of, of top-down fixes for, um, you know, the replication crisis and more just even just at like the national academies of science. Like what, what is it good for? What are they doing? And that that's like a totally different question, I think, but um, certainly, you know, before I, in between being a grad student and being a journalist, I, I briefly worked in um, the, um, I worked for PLOS and I, I was very interested. You know what? I, it's like, I can't, I can't even remember what is the word for <laughs> for um open access journals that's funny i was just like open science no it's not open science what did we call it back then open access <laughs> right it's all kind of merged together and 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 one has been subsumed into the other but that that was one
0: it's the smoke beer den
2: yeah yeah exactly um open access was was an issue where it was very clear that like there were there were top down influences that could make all the differences in the world like if the journals changed their policies and if the big granting agencies just put requirements in that you publish open access like the game was over right so um, you know i guess i guess the same could be true with other fixes to um, you know sub- substantial problems within the scientific field. That if if the, just the journals got together and the biggest and the NIH and um, decided this is how we're going to do it, right? That 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 would be quite powerful. Um, I I was just you know I guess. The, the what I was talking about before was more of these just sort of committees in, in, that were, and panels that study issues and, and issue reports. I don't I don't know how useful that is given all the evidence that's on the ground.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess my question would be who actually is the target audience for this thing? Like, do you know? Do you have a guess? Because I, I really don't.
2: No idea. And I've asked people who were like literally involved in the production of this report, who the audience is. And, and I, it's, I don't think anyone knows.
1: Right. I mean, it might just be like, look, this stuff is being talked about so much and it felt like mandatory for them to have an opinion on it. So they were like, oh, we should write a report.
2: No, Congress
0: asked them to.
1: Oh, okay. Well, there you go.
0: So, Dan, I'm conscious of time, and I know we don't have you for much longer. And and I really, uh, you know, we've we've really been talking about science and and replication. Um, But uh, you are a multifaceted journalist and you have, uh, you know, various interests. And I want to kind of talk about some other stuff outside of uh, uh, reproducibility. Um, So I'm not sure I read an article from you about this topic, but on Twitter, I've noticed that you kind of poke, you're poking a little bit. At the concussion in sport issue, um, and by that I mean, it seems like um, so. I'm Canadian, so I I pay attention a lot to hockey, and I like hockey a lot. Um, there's a lot of talk about uh, uh, you know concussions being a major problem in contact sports, plus such as hockey and also uh, football, um, and there seems to be. I'm not sure if it's consensus, but at least it's some public opinion that, you know, we need to stop these concussions. They're, they're, they're life altering. And, you know, I can name probably a handful of athletes that I know in hockey alone that, have, you know, had to retire early because of concussions. But it seems like you kind of pushed against that saying, hey, this might be overblown a little bit. Um, the evidence isn't all there. So, um, and I take that as you know something I like about you is that you're contrarian. So, what is your take here on concussions in sports?
2: Yeah, I'm definitely a a concussion uh, a concussion contrarian or a a CTE denialist. I've been called. Um, so, and it's something I've written about. Uh, I mean, I, I tweet about it, but I've I've written a lot about it for Slate in particular. Um, and generally, my position is just that this topic i to to pull back and and overall the, i just think this topic has been covered horribly i just think the coverage is, is pathetic like i not <laughs> maybe this is two beers talking but um yeah, I mean the I was drawn to this and I think the problem here is that this is like a a science story and a medical story and it was covered at the outset by sports reporters. Um so there was just kind of like a mismatch of uh, you know about of, of of style and 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 method and knowledge base. Are and, you
0: maligning your 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 fellow journalists <laughs> now? Yes.
2: No, I I just think uh and then it was sort of taken over as a so it initially it was a sports story, and then it was taken over in, in by and viewed kind of like um it's often analogized to the big tobacco story this was like a, a you know in investigative reporting they're amazing investigative reporters um who are on this case there's uh these two brothers f uh Finaru and Fanaru wada who um have just done incredible work at uncovering what, you know, here in the U S what the NFL knew and when they knew it and their efforts to cover things up and that stuff. Like, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's incredible uh, reporting of a kind that, uh, you know, I could never do, but, you know, I think that narrative is, extremely appealing, you know, this idea of, of this um, corporate cover-up. It's like the movie, the Michael Mann movie, The Insider. It's very exciting. And it may be true, but that kind of, it, you know, the, the health effects of playing football are not the health effects of smoking. Like just as a, as a scientific matter, as a medical matter, these are different things. The, the state of knowledge is different. So I, I just, I haven't liked the way that this is covered. Uh, this sort of sloppy way that it's covered um the the sloppy inferences that are drawn and i was i first got into this uh really I think when the football player junior Seau um died by suicide, and um yeah, it was just like taken as a given that this resulted from his history of head injury and that's just like an a, an absurd claim given the the evidence that's available. Like, there's a, there's a lot of evidence that head injuries um, lead to you know a, a, acute problems and and chronic problems too. But the evidence that it leads to suicide is very very weak. Um, and I think when you're reporting on suicide, that's just an area where you have to be extremely careful because there are contagion effects potentially and so forth. So that's, that's how I got into it. And that's kind of been my line ever since is that um, we really have to know what the, you know, what the dangers here are. And we really need to just be careful about some of this um, irresponsible reporting and exaggeration about the effects.
1: So uh, just so we're clear, like, what are the specific health consequences where you think that there's just not good evidence that playing uh, professional football leads to these longer term effects?
2: So, you know, the the idea is this is uh, there's something. With boxers, we used to call it punch-drunk syndrome. There's, it's long been known or suspected that people get hit in the head a lot, have um, a whole constellation of symptoms. Um, you know, there haven't been that many studies that just look at the long-term health of, you know, former contact athletes. Um, there is a, a big one that was done in, in, out of Michigan, where they looked at a bunch of NFL retirees and they did find some stuff they found higher levels of uh dementia they found a uh, some some indication of, of of a few other things but the the cognitive decline looked like a a real serious problem uh there was another study done by NIOSH the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health where they compared they did a you know uh they compared um age and and race match controls to retired NFL athletes, and they just looked at, you know, what happened to these guys, and they found rates of um, Alzheimer's and ALS were up in the athlete pool. So there are are signs that, you know, getting hit in the head might be leading to some of these, you know, neurological symptoms, but they also found that the ex-NFL athletes lived much longer on average than the controls. Um, They were they had less cases of suicide than the controls, less depression you know less heart disease, less other problems. Um, so there's just you know if you actually look at the at, at what's happening to these people it's a it's sort of a complicated story and yet I think if you go by the news accounts it's just you know you'd think that, Uh, every football player has an incurable neurodegenerative disease that will lead to uh, drug abuse and violence and suicide. And that's just like, it has nothing to do with the actual data that's been.
1: Right. That's fascinating because as a casual observer of this stuff, that definitely was my impression. Now, I think we have time for one more question. Um, And I see this thing here in the show notes about the progress bar on computers. And I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> Can you explain what the hell that is? Uh,
2: yeah, that's a pro- <laughs> that's something. Um, I I I used to write a column for the New York Times magazine called "Who Made That," and it was about um, I just picked random stuff and and looked at where it originated, and one of the things I worked on was the progress bar i start to wonder where you know where did that come from and um it's sort of an interesting story i mean it, it it both where it came from and and uh how it developed and then how it kind of went away i mean progress bars are certainly not so much a part of our lives uh today as they were i don't know 15 years ago when like you're just constantly staring at your computer screen waiting for the progress bar to complete but um yeah, I I've, one of the, the the parts of that story I liked was when you know Apple invested in you know the psychology studying the psychology of progress bars, and they learned that you know you could implement some some like visual tricks that would make people feel like time was passing more quickly, like if you had. Um, sort of waves or, or ripples going backwards on the progress bar, or if you had it accelerate as it reached the end, even, you know, just arbitrarily, having nothing to do with what that computer is actually doing, that this just sort of gave people the sensation that things were happening more quickly than they were.
1: That's that's awesome. I, I remember that from the OS 9, you know, progress bar, that it would have this little shimmery thing, these little waves that would run, you know, backwards and i i never realized that that was actually that they were trying to trick me that way
2: well yeah I mean it like if, if you think about it it's the whole purpose of the progress bar was in flux like it, it, you know initially it might have been a, meant to be an honest signal like you would know when when computers took a really long time to do things it was useful to look at the screen and have a sense like oh I have about 12 minutes to go to the bathroom or something but once they sped up to a certain point where you weren't really going to get up from your desk, you were just going to sit there and stare and wait. Well, then really the name of the game was just like, how do you help pass the time for this person? How do I minimize the pain for the user? So, you know, the, the design behind it kind of followed along like, the you know the the purpose of it which followed along the the development of the technology i don't know i it's it's a a topic of continuing interest thank you for bringing it up
0: (laughs) i actually want to i really want to ask about this because i fucking can't stand marathon runners they fucking annoy the fuck out of me so you wrote an article about how marathon running like that distance is not you know really the the distance we should aiming for but another distance so what's the deal what's your thesis here
2: Oh, just, uh, yeah, my, um, my infamous anti-marathon piece, of I was just <laughs> making the kind of trollish argument that, um, that, that this is kind of like a, a, a ridiculous use of one's time, that it's, it's not like a healthy thing to run 26 miles. Um, and if, if you view it as, as just sort of like for the pure a- accomplishment of it, um, there are a lot of other things you could do. I actually originally had this plan to set up uh, at Slate a whole like um, project that would involve readers, where everyone would we would set up a, a, a typical marathon training schedule: this many hours this day, this many hours the next day, this many hours the day after that. And then, but instead of just running and practicing to run 26 miles, people would set their own personal goals, like I'm going to learn finish or something, or I'm going to. Um, I'm going to learn to play this musical instrument, and then on the day of the New York City Marathon, we were going to hopefully try to get everyone together, and like people would speak Finnish to each other, or <laughs> have have a hoedown playing fiddles, and and that that would be just like look at what we've accomplished in the time that you spent just running a dumb marathon. I say that as someone who likes running, I just don't like running that much.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. It's true. It takes so much bloody time, and what else could you be doing with that time? And and it's also not clear that it's necessarily healthy for you, um, uh, d- d- to be doing that. So yeah, I, I think it's pretty
1: clear it's bad for you. You you injure yourself all the time, right? Like
0: yeah, I mean I, I actually you know I'm uh, the most exercise I get is is riding my bicycle to UL's place uh, to record podcasts, um, but uh I. Th- and, you know, so I'm not an exerciser, but I felt the least healthy in my life when I was a runner. Um, my fucking knees hurt. My feet hurt. Like, it just, it was terrible. Um, so, anyhow, I, I didn't care about the science. I just liked your argument. <laughs> <laughs> I've,
2: I've gotten, I've, that, that's probably the second most amount of hate mail that I've gotten for a piece was after that one. What was the first? When I attacked the wind chill factor.
0: You attack the windchill factor. Tell us about it.
2: Oh, I just—it uh, was. <laughs> I just think the—I think the windchill factor is—is is just ridiculous and should be abolished. <laughs> this Listen, one, I can't. can't def- I can't necessarily defend the marathon thing. I mean, I know there are people; it's very meaningful to them. But I, this one, I'm certain of. The windchill factor should be abolished. I will. I will argue to the death on that point.
1: Well, I—I I want to be convinced because I find it to be. True that if you go outside on a cold day and it's windy, that you feel colder. So what's wrong with that?
2: Okay, so you you may or may not know that in Canada the uh, the wind chill used to be computed in in some like bizarre measure that was like sixty two hundred more rapidly, like the heat would be lost in in a given wind conditions. And then at a certain point, a bunch I think Americans screwed this up. So uh, a bunch of Americans said, no, we we need to um, we need to, this is too confusing. We need to, to create like a, an equivalent temperature. Like an, we need to tell people that at, at such and such a wind condition, it feels like this temperature. And I think that was just like a, a terrible decision because uh, it implied that they knew how it felt. To be that that there was an equivalency between you know twenty degrees at fifteen mile an hour winds and and twenty eight degrees at, at on a still day, so um they came up with a system for doing this. The system was terrible. people started to complain because it was just like way off, so they tried to fix it and come up with an, an, a more elaborate model. but the model has so many assumptions it's it's like when you as soon as you start to dig in, you just realize that these feels like temperatures don't really mean very much. I mean, I can just run you through some of the assu- assumptions. The assumptions include the fact that you're five feet tall, that you're walking uh, directly into the wind, that you're in an, in an open field, <laughs> that your entire body is covered except for your face. Um, And also that you're
0: so far, this describes me perfectly. By Uh,
2: also that you're (laughs) obese, you have to be in the like 95th percentile for BMI because there's all these effects on the on the perception of temperature based on um, you know how how thick is the layer of fat that you have under your skin. So you have this totally arbitrary thing. The only reason it works is because. We learn over time to associate like the wind chill readings with our own personal experiences. Like, I know what it feels like when the weather tells me it's a wind chill of 15. So, it just makes it even more ridiculous that they keep adjusting the model because every time they adjust the model, they throw everyone off. The whole thing is absurd. All they have to do is tell us the temperature and the wind speed. That's two numbers. And then I can form my own internal model based on how fat I am and based on you know how tall I am and what clothes I wear. And they, they'll never have to change it. Anyway, end of rant.
0: Dude, I love that. I have not read that article, but I'm going to read it right after this because – a pet peeve of mine is when people will ask them what the temperature is, and they'll report it as the wind show. It's minus, you know, Celsius, minus 40 today. Like, minus Like 40? forty. not that the lowest ever recorded in Toronto? I don't know. It's actually minus 10 by the wind <laughs> What the fuck are you talking about? Right. Um, well, part of the point
2: of it is, right, so that, you know, to, to make talking about the weather more fun, you can just exaggerate everything.
0: It's a sell ads for the weather <laughs> kind of think. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I want one last question, UL. Will you allow me one last question? One more, Mickey. Okay, one last one. So I am, you know, this is this will be uh, irrelevant by the time this airs, but uh, right now uh, the Toronto Raptors are playing the Milwaukee Bucks in the Eastern Conference Final, and they are winning, eighty nine to eighty one. Um, they are in the, I'm not sure where they are. I guess third quarter or fourth quarter. Um, now you. I think came up with an elaborate uh, scheme, you know, to how about how to distract NBA free throw shooters. And I would like to know, you know, just waving one of those spaghetti kind of things isn't that the way you you distract NBA players?
2: This was the very start of my journalism career. So when I was a, a grad student, I was studying hand eye coordination in uh, in a neuroscience lab. And uh, and one of the first pieces I ever wrote as a journalist was about my attempt to uh, to fix the way that NBA fans distracted opposing free throw shooters because it bothered me that they just wave their thunder sticks like wildly and create you know a, a field of of white noise behind the backboard which is not going to do anything. Um, so I had this idea that. If everyone waved their thundersticks in unison, and particularly if they changed direction of the wave at exactly the moment that the guy was releasing the ball, that actually might, you know, mess with his movement a little bit, mess with the motor program. So um, that this is actually how I got really how I got started in journalism because uh, I then, on a lark, pitched that idea by unsolicited email to Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks. And not at all expecting <laughs> that he would respond. And he emailed, he emailed me back like instantly. And he loved the idea. And he implemented it at Mavericks games. And, uh, and so my dinky little story about just like, here's my idea to, to distract free throw shooters became this really like funny, weird, you know, saga of how I actually influenced the way basketball games were played, very briefly, and uh, and that was one of the first. That might have been the first piece I ever wrote for Slate, and then I was uh, offered a, a more of a full time position writing for Slate. Shortly thereafter, I think because that piece was ended up being you know a lot of fun. So um, that that really is a that is an important. Uh, that is an important story in my life history.
1: So I think the, uh, the the next home game is on Saturday, so we can get the word out before then and uh, implement your plan.
2: Well, you should know that Mark Cuban claims it didn't work in the end, although he was also under some pressure because he knew I was going to publish my story, and it. I think he had been getting in trouble with the league for breaking league rules that season, and I think he just. Right. He, I think he just didn't want the heat from uh, from NBA brass.
1: He didn't want the word to get out about how effective this.
2: <laughs> so I did meet someone who told me that they'd been at a Mavericks game like two years later, and that there was there was still someone coordinating the Thundersticks.
0: I, I never confirmed
2: yeah. that, but I I like to think that they're still doing it.
1: Yeah,
0: Dan yeah. Engber, influencer of the NBA.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's more than you or I
0: ever did, right? Uh, we this is this is this is us. This is this is as much as we are going to accomplish.